0: Well, in our lesson last week, we discussed the Lord's denunciation of Israel's religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees, and what we entitled His Six Woes. And this morning, in our look at Luke chapter 12, we're going to discuss His five warnings, although I told you we're uh, really going to only cover two of those warnings. These warnings, the five of Luke chapter 2, were spoken primarily to His disciples, and you'll see that in the first verse if you look ahead at it before I read it. So they were primarily, first and foremost, spoken to his disciples but secondly they were also heard by a huge multitude and you see that as well in verse one now those five warnings if you look at our outline for this uh two-part study are to beware of hypocrisy now actually there's three negative ones there's the first three are don't be okay don't be a hypocrite uh don't be covetous and don't worry so they're beware of hypocrisy, beware of covetousness, and beware of worry. And then the the second two warnings are really positive warnings, and they are to be watchful. We are to be watchful as Christians. What are we watching for? The Lord's return, and we're to be discerning. Now, in the, um, the uh, warning about covetousness, we're going to be discussing this morning the parable of the rich farmer, and then... When we get next week, or not next week, two weeks from now, when we get to the um, discussion on being watchful, we'll be discussing the new parable about the faithful servants. Now, this is a long chapter. If you look at chapter 12, you'll understand why I just can't possibly cover it in one lesson. It, it consists of 59 verses. <clears throat> and uh, But the interesting thing is that 35 of the 59 verses, we have already discussed primarily when we um, learned about the Sermon on the Mount several years ago, was it, I think, now? Several years ago. And if some of you were not here when we discussed the hypocritical rule and um, the worry rule and some of those, the judgmental rule and different things that we'll be looking at in Luke chapter 12... This morning we're just going to be looking at those two warnings about hypocrisy and covetousness, mostly highlighting the area of covetousness because of the fact that we have, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about the um, hypocritical problem in depth we discussed it in i think it was lesson number oh i don't know the number but it was called the hypocritical rule and it was found in matthew 6 verses 16 and 17 and we spent a whole lesson on that so today we're mostly going to be talking about the the danger of covetousness but we'll begin because the lord did with the subject of hypocrisy and for this let's look at verses 1 to 12 you're all in luke chapter 12 Okay, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 12. It says, In the meantime, when there were gathered together an innumerable multitude of people, insomuch that they trod one upon another, he, Jesus, began to say unto his disciples, First of all, So he's speaking primarily, first of all, to his disciples. And he says, "'Beware ye of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore whatsoever ye have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light, and that which ye have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed upon the housetops.'" And I say unto you, my friends, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. And I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. But he that denieth me before men shall be denied before the angels of God. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven. What is that called right there? Verse 10. The unpardonable sin, exactly. And we did also discuss that in the Sermon on the Mount. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. Okay, stop right there, and then you can go back and look at verse 1. The first thing that we notice here is that the Lord was still very, very, very popular with the crowds. And where is he now, by the way? Is he up in Galilee? He's in Judea. He's down in Judea. All right. So he's and he's very popular with the crowd. So so much so that this crowd, this particular crowd, whenever this took place, was innumerable. It, there were so many in the crowd, people couldn't be counted, and they were literally trampling over one another to get to hear and to see Jesus. Although it was probably mostly because they wanted him, they wanted to see him perform some kind of a miracle, or they wanted him to meet a personal. Need You know, something for them. And we're going to see this evidenced by a man who came to Jesus and he was concerned about a personal matter. And that is in verse 13. Maybe they were even hoping to witness another confrontation between Jesus and their prestigious religious rulers. Because that was always very entertaining to behold, wasn't it? And to listen to. A confrontation between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. But the Lord had his heart at this point in time, set on warning his disciples, and this may be including the 12 and the 70, about and and also any of those in the crowd who had ears to hear, about some of the most dangerous problems that a person can encounter that will keep him or her from living a righteous life. And these things are not those that come from without, They're not those that attack us externally. These are things that come from within our own selves. Things like what? Hypocrisy, covetousness, and, oh no, worry. (laughs) And he started out speaking about hypocrisy. And because he was speaking first and foremost to his... Disciples, as we're told in verse 1, this tells us that hypocrisy is even a danger among followers of Christ, isn't it? It's a danger that even Christians can fall into. All three of these dangers are dangers that Christians can fall into. Hypocrisy, covetousness, and worry. Now, the Greek word, you all know this, the Greek word hypocrite refers to one who wears a mask. It refers to an actor or one who pretends to be somebody that he or she is not. And there, of course, are hypocrites in all walks of life, aren't there? All different walks of life. Because there are people everywhere who are trying to impress others at the expense of hiding who they really are, hiding their true selves. Now, a religious hypocrite, is a person who tries to appear more spiritual than he truly is. And, of course, as we know, who were, the, who were the experts at doing this? Right, the scribes and the Pharisees. And, of course, there were always exceptions. But, by and large, the scribes and Pharisees were a bunch of um, religious hypocrites. And Jesus said so to their faces, He said so to their faces. He called them hypocrites on many occasions. And he did that before he ever spoke about them to the masses. You know, it wasn't like he was talking about them behind their backs. He told them right to their faces, and then he also shared this with, with the crowds of people. But he was particularly concerned here that his disciples would not be tempted to gain popularity. I mean, here they are surrounded by this huge innumerable crowd of people he's concerned that they won't be tempted to gain popularity by trying to please the crowds or by being tempted to maybe avoid trouble for themselves especially after he was gone he knew he was leaving them shortly they didn't know that but he knew that so he was concerned that they wouldn't try to avoid trouble for themselves by trying to please the scribes and the pharisees by compromising on truth you know, what? Did the, I, I thought about this. Or the, the other way that they could have been um, tempted to be hypocrites would be, um, you know, once he left and the church is going to be founded on them, they're the, like the foundation for the church, and people would hold them up in high esteem, even though the scribes and the Pharisees would want to persecute them, and they might be tempted to compromise with them. On the other hand, because they were going to be somebody's in the church, they could be tempted to um, be high and mighty spiritually and act more spiritual than they really were right and be hypocrites that way in front of the church you can be hypocrites out there in the world and uh, compromise the truth you know you might be a christian in a crowd of unsaved people and you're covering up wearing a mask that you're not really such a fundamental christian you know like you really are inside or you can be in the church and be um, acting more spiritual than you really are and this would be you know there's a temptation on both sides but i got to think Thinking about, you know what, one of the greatest deterrents to hypocrisy is humbling experiences. And I got to thinking about why so many of the Lord's apostles had these humbling experiences. For example, Peter had many of them, didn't he? Especially when he denied the Lord. That was a very humbling experience for him. So, he you know, he didn't act like a hypocrite the rest of his life because he knew what was really inside of him. And the same thing we could say would be true with Thomas, doubting Thomas, you think about his blunder. And James and John, they had several humbling experiences when they wanted to call down lightning and make crispy critters of all those Samaritan people. And then when they were arguing over who would get the best seats next to Jesus when he came into his kingdom, those were humbling experiences for them. And Paul, why do you think Paul said that he was the chief of sinners. What was he doing before he was on his way to Damascus? Killing and persecuting Christians. So he was humbled. You know, that's really some of our humbling experiences are really good for us. They really are good for us because they will they will help us to understand that we are the chiefest of sinners. You know, that's why I always I I never want to get up here and pretend like I am so righteous and so godly because I know my real self. And one of my greatest fears is to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be... Most of the time, I'm preaching more to myself than I am to any of you guys. (laughs) Hypocrisy, just like a little piece, a small little piece of of yeast, leaven, that is placed into a large lump of, of bread, you know, bread dough, Hypocrisy can begin very small, but then what does it do, do, just like leaven? It begins to grow slowly, but surely. It grows slowly and quietly unseen, can't be seen inside that lump of bread, until finally it has influenced the entire person. Hypocrisy does to a person what leaven does to bread. It spreads its influence until it puffs up. Pride can take over. And although a person's reputation before others might grow, the character of that person deteriorates. You know, others might look at him and say, oh, he really is so spiritual. But if he's a hypocrite inside, he's deteriorating. All hypocrisy is really foolish. It's also not only foolish, but it's futile because of the fact that who sees everything and knows everything. It's foolish and it's futile because God sees all. It says nothing, If you look at verse 2, nothing is hidden from God. There's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Boy, that's scary, isn't it? (laughs) He sees absolutely everything. All the pretense, all the deceit, all the cover-ups, all the lies of of every hypocrite will one day be exposed. And often it is exposed even before Judgment Day. We think of Judgment Day when all these things will be exposed, but sometimes it's even exposed before Judgment Day. such as it was in the life of Judas Iscariot, right? And such as it was in the lives of these scribes and Pharisees. And even in the lives of, of believers, I think of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit and they were cut off right then and there. They were being hypocrites, pretending they were giving more to the church than they really were. The outward actions of all that we do and all that we say are are not the only things that are judged by God because he sees and judges even the deep secrets of our hearts. The hypocritical religious rulers of Jesus' day seem to have forgotten that truth. And that's an all-important truth, that God sees the heart. He knows everything. Or else they had deceived themselves, and I think a lot of it was self-deception, that they had deceived themselves into thinking they were good when really their hearts were very, very evil. I mean, here they are plotting and planning how to kill God's son. But Jesus always calls it like it is— doesn't he he always calls it exactly like it is he doesn't pull back any punches he told them that they performed their religious deeds to be seen of men and this was again back in the sermon on the mount he said you're doing all that you're doing in order to be seen of men and to be praised of men and he told them that because it was true but as we learn, where is it? I forgot to look it up. Is it First Samuel sixteen seven or something like that, where it says, "Man sees, but not as God sees. For for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart." I can't remember that scripture passage exactly. But uh, being two-faced which is what a hypocrite is, being two-faced is never wise and it's never safe. Because one day, as Jesus warned his men here, and as he is warning you and I, one day everything that is done in secrecy, everything that is done in those dark closets, is going to be revealed in the light. That'll keep you honest, won't it? If you all, wherever you go and whatever you do, whether you're in the, the darkest closet in your house, who sees you? God sees you. God sees you. And this is scary. It's going to be one day proclaimed from the housetops. That's in verse 3. Everything that's ever been done hypocritically. And those secret closets are going to be proclaimed from the housetops. Ecclesiastes 12.14 says this, For God shall bring every work into judgment whether with every secret thing. Every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Now, there's a little bit of comfort in that passage because it says even those good things that you do in secret that nobody knows about. There's a lot of good that gets done, but nobody ever knows about it, right? You do things behind the scenes and nobody ever knows that you've done them. But God knows. So the good things will be revealed and the evil things will be revealed. All the lies, all the deceits, all the sins of the hypocrites is one day going to be revealed. So so Jesus was strongly warning his men and you and I that there is no use in pretending. Absolutely no use in pretending or compromising. You know, don't act like less than a Christian so as not to offend somebody. Or uh, so as not to be persecuted. And don't act more spiritual than you really are so that you will be praised by others. Because everything one day is going to be brought in the open. You see, fear... Now, the Lord goes on to talk a lot about fear. Fear is often what causes people to be hypocrites. I asked my husband this morning, I said, think about hypocrites. What do you think is the bottom line for a person being a hypocrite? And he said, well, they're trying to be somebody they're they're not. And I said, yeah, but that's what a hypocrite is. Why are people hypocrites? And he got to thinking about it, and he came up with pride and fear and those are the two i came up with as well. Jesus goes on to talk here about fear. Fear is often what causes people to be hypocrites. That's why he said five times in verses 4 to 7, five times he talked about not not well he used the word fear or afraid. It's when we fear, you see what others might think about us um, or when we fear about what others might do to us or what, uh, what others might say about us, if they knew who we really were, what we really thought, that then we put on a mask so as to gain their approval. We might even lie, and we might even be deceitful. And deceit is at the heart of hypocrisy in order to gain their approval and their acceptance and, and um, not be ostracized or rejected or hurt. So, really, the remedy for hypocrisy is to really fear being one. Really fear being a hypocrite. That's, I know we're not to fear. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but I don't know what other word to use. I fear being a hypocrite because I fear God. I fear God more than I fear men do you understand what i'm saying are you getting this i know it's early in the morning it's not that early we're getting into afternoon but really i think that's a good healthy fear to fear being a hypocrite Um, and to put the fear of god before the fear of man the fear of man often does and can so easily cause what a snare. Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says, "The fear of man brings a snare," and that is so true. So many people are hip- hypocrites because they fear men. And they fear what others will think. A lot of people too are hypocrites because of pride, as the scribes and Pharisees. I think that was more of their problem was their pride than anything else. But please, if you, if you are not genuinely a Christian and you have that little seed of doubt in your heart, and you you think, well, I'm, I just it would be too fearful to ever say, I don't think I'm really saved, and to go forward in church, if they have an invitation or whatever, just to even tell somebody about it, I don't really know if I'm a Christian. So many people, I think, don't do that, um, and they sit there and they keep attending church, and they're hypocrites about it, because of why? Because they're afraid. Maybe they've been going to church all their lives, and they say, well, I what would people think if Catherine Caldwell went forward and said, I don't know that I'm really saved. I mean, that... That's not only a pride issue, but it's a fear issue, isn't it? Fear of what other people would think. So let's remember, put the fear of God above the fear of man and do what we have to do. And be real with ourselves, open and honest and real with ourselves. Now, there were obviously some people in that huge crowd around Jesus who must have been dealing within themselves as to whether or not they should profess their faith in Jesus Christ or not. Uh, because they knew that to do so would very likely, just like that born blind blind beggar back in John chapter 9, would mean that they would be put out of the social and the religious life of Israel. It would even mean that they would lose contact with their own families. They would not be employable. Uh, just think how much their wives and their, or their husbands and their children would suffer. It was a very high price to pay at this point in time. Because the religious rulers, if anybody was associating with. Claiming to be a follower of Jesus, they were saying, like the blind man, you know, they were going to be de-synagogued. So they were probably thinking, you know, is it worth it to confess him openly? So Jesus is warning them not to fear what men could do to them. Because all men can do at the very, very worst is what? Kill them. The, The very worst that men can do to you and I is to is to kill the body. But God can condemn the eternal soul and god will even one day raise the body won't he men kill it god will raise it men only have limited power on this side of the grave but god has unlimited power even after the grave and he has the power to cast into hell so think about that who do you fear men or god Who's got by far the more power? God, of course. Men, at the most, can only send us out of this world. They cannot send us out of heaven, can they? You know, because once, once we're saved, always saved, and we are secure. Our destiny is stamped and sealed. Furthermore, the Lord went on to say that when a person places his or her faith in him, he becomes a child of God. He doesn't need to fear the lack of necessities. In verses 6 and 7, just like we previously discussed in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord, again, as he had done quite a few times in Luke chapter 11, which we looked at last week, he argued from the lesser to the greater. Remember how he did that in the parable of the importunate friend? He taught taught from the the lesser to the greater. His point is here in verses um, 6 and 7. You'll have to look at those because I won't have the time to read them again. But his point was how if, if God cares for even the sparrows, which were very, very common and very cheap back in that day. If he cares even for the sparrows, how much more does he care and provide for his own beloved ch- children? And he made the same point. We won't get this to this until we come back, but if you look at verse 24 in this chapter, he makes the same point again. Instead of using um, sparrows, he uses ravens. And uh, I got to thinking about, you know, that song, His eye is on the sparrow. I can't get that low. (laughs) Why isn't it, His eye is on the raven? (laughs) Because his eyes are on the ravens, too. You know what a raven is? It's like a crow. Yeah, we don't have, my husband said, we don't have ravens in this area. We have crows, but I guess they had ravens over in um, Israel. But um, one who wrote the song, like the idea of sparrows better than ravens if he and then he's again arguing from the lesser to the greater when he says that if god knows even the number of hairs on our head and they're not just the numbers but they're numbered this is hair number one hair number two you know if i lose hair number 45 then he has to renumber them all he he numbers the hairs of our head then how much more is he concerned about our whole body You know, because a hair isn't very valuable, as it pluck one out it's not that big of a deal. It's a good thing because I lose a lot every day, don't you? But if he cares about the hairs of our heads, he certainly cares a whole lot more about our whole person, our whole body. So the principles stressed here in these verses are God's provision and God's providence. He sees, he knows, he cares, and he oversees all of the events on earth. He even knows when a sparrow falls, doesn't he? He even knows when somebody shoots a raven. (laughs) And and not only that, but he's omniscient. He's all-knowing, he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and therefore he is able to control the events that happen to every one of us. He's able to control all the events in our lives so as to work them all out together for our own good. Isn't that amazing, how he can orchestrate all of that together for our good and his glory. So much so to the extent that you and I never need to fear being forgotten or forsaken by him. We don't have to be out there fending on on our own. He takes care of even the fowl of the air and the lilies of the field, doesn't he? And so certainly he's going to take care of us. And care of us is my maiden name. Every time I say that, I think I have Caravas was my maiden name. Isn't that great? It wasn't spelled like you think it was, but uh, that was my maiden name, Caravas. All right, in verses 8 to 12, the Lord went on to encourage his audience to confess him publicly by giving them a two-edged promise. First edge is, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. That's the first part of his two-edged promise. Confessing Christ, you see, publicly helps us to have a far easier time living the truth before others and avoiding hypocrisy. If we confess that we're Christians out there in the world, then when we're in our certain little circles with unbelievers, and they all know who we are and what we stand for and what we believe, we don't have to worry about being a hypocrite. So you see, public confession is, is a good thing. Uh, furthermore, ask yourself this question: How can we possibly fear mere men when we know and, and you know and not confess, ourselves about our relationship with christ how can we do that when we know that jesus christ is confessing us before his father in heaven and that he will confess us yet in the future you know before his the holy angels who stand in the very presence of god you know so if you're afraid to confess him and you really do believe in him remember he's up there confessing for you you need to be confessing for him well the second edge of this uh, promise is is a much scarier one to look at it's that those who will not confess him those who will not acknowledge him before men he will deny before his angels before the angels of God he is only the advocate of of those who belong to him. The only ones he's confessing to his Father in heaven and before the holy angels are those who truly belong to him. And this, this second part here is a very, 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 very serious warning to all of those who believe that they can be secret Christians. You know, those who have never, ever confessed their faith in Christ before others. Because if they are ashamed of him, perhaps they will one day tragically find out that he will be ashamed of them. Do you want to get to heaven and find, well, I guess they wouldn't get to heaven. (laughs) Well, no, there will be Christians who get to heaven and will be ashamed, won't they? I sure don't want to get to heaven and, and have him be ashamed of me. Wouldn't that be awful to live with that all throughout eternity? Now, I know he'll love me anyway and all that, but to even have him be ashamed of me at all be horrible. Mark eight thirty eight says this, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the son of man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels. That's another very serious passage to think about. And another one is uh, 2 Timothy 2.12, where it says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That's why I think the Lord gives us the opportunity to uh, participate in believer's baptism. You know, that's a, you don't have to be baptized to be saved but baptism is the next step of obedience after your salvation and it's to make a public identification and a public confession of christ it's for your own good because there you are publicly confessing him before the greatest people in the world before other christians your brothers and sisters who rejoice with you and um you're you're being obedient to his command here that you're not ashamed of him that you're publicly confessing your your salvation if any of you have been saved and you have never been baptized it's the next step of obedience how can you remain in fellowship with christ if you haven't been you need to be you need to be it's very important all right now not for salvation but for obedience it's important now because we've already talked in detail back this is again back in uh, well no that wasn't in the sermon on the mount it was back in matthew chapter 12 which was not part of the sermon on the mount but we talked in detail about the unpardonable sin i'm just going to as we get to it now in verse 11 i'm just going to talk about it very quickly and uh if you want more detail about the unpardonable sin you can go back in. Ch- uh, let's see lesson number 56 in the life of christ three book But the unpardonable sin is this. The unpardonable sin is committed with a person's complete and final rejection of the plea of the Holy Spirit to turn from sin and to turn to Christ for their forgiveness and salvation. So it's when you reject the um, prompting, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit about your sin and your need to turn to the Savior. And you do that, you either do that so much so that your heart gets hardened, Uh, you harden your heart, and then God turns around. Finally, you've hardened your heart so many times that he hardens your heart, and at that point you've committed the unpardonable sin, or you go to your deathbed without having accepted Christ. And once you've died, you've taken your last breath, and you've rejected Christ, there's no second chance. You've, you've, you're unpardonable. But there are people, you know, Genesis 6-3 says that God's Spirit will not always strive with man. There were people in the Bible, given as examples to us, who did commit the unpardonable sin before their deathbed, such as Pharaoh of Egypt. He was one. And uh, Judas Iscariot was one and some of the scribes and pharisees i believe and the chief priests who knew who jesus was and yet they re- they 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 just kept rejecting the prompting of the holy spirit and they craw- finally crossed over that line we don't know where that line is but god does so that in a nutshell is um what the, etern- what the unpardonable sin is but do you know what good news is that a genuinely saved person cannot ever commit the unpardonable sin now, I've had people in the past that have thought oh um, the unpardonable sin is what do you hear a lot suicide some people have thought that the unpardonable sin was suicide or adultery or murder or whatever something like that but um, that's not true That's not true. There are saved people who have committed suicide. If you're saved, you can never, ever commit the unpardonable sin. And another thing, if you're really concerned and worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you probably have not committed it because you wouldn't be worried and concerned about it if the Holy Spirit wasn't still working on you. All right, well, in contrast to those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, as Jesus just talked about in verse 10, followers of the Lord are benefited by the Holy Spirit of God because, and this is what he talks about in the next two verses, 11 and 12, because they receive divine assistance in times of hardship and in times of persecution. Jesus did not want those who were thinking of making the right decision regarding him He didn't want them to allow fear to prevent them from doing so. You know, like fear of the what the scribes and Pharisees might do to them. So he went on to promise them divine assistance when they needed it, when they needed that extra strength and grace, especially in times of persecution. And would the early church go through times of persecution? Yes, indeed, they would. But he's telling them they wouldn't be alone. And, of course, here primarily he's speaking to his apostles and the other 70 disciples. He's telling them, um, you won't be alone notice that he didn't promise that they wouldn't face persecution or that they would not be excommunicated in fact he prophesied that they would be he said when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers in other words this is a prophecy you are going to be brought before those in power and were the apostles yes they were they, and we could go through the book of Acts and show you how many of them were brought before people like this. And he's saying at that moment in time, when that happens, the the Holy Spirit is going to benefit you. The, the Spirit of the li- living God would be with them to give them that extra strength. You might think, how could I ever even have a stand without my knees just giving Away underneath me you know they'd be they'd be um, shaking so bad I'd fall down on my face I'd be so scared but God gives when you need it that extra grace that extra strength that peace that passes all understanding and not only that but the Holy Spirit will even give them the words to say and have we found this to be true in history Many times you can look at, like my husband was talking about Sunday school yesterday, the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and see how many of those men and women who died as they're dying, the wonderful testimonies for Christ that they gave. Now, that came from above. The Holy Spirit gave them those words and the grace and the power to die, giving a strong testimony for the Lord. And we saw this in the first martyr, Stephen. Man, talk about beautiful words as they're just about ready to stone him to death. Just listen to what Stephen said in the book of Acts. So that's a wonderful benefit, isn't it? So he's really encouraging his audience to come to him, not to be fearful of men. All right, let's look now at um, the second danger, and that is to beware of covetousness. And for this, I'm going to first of all begin by just reading verses 13 to 15, where it says, And one of the companies said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And he said unto them, that's Jesus still speaking, he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Well, sadly here, after Jesus had just been teaching about some very important spiritual matters, a man in the company, and I guess I don't, I think that means a man in the crowd, came to him with a request uh, to solve a family inheritance situation. Now, this certainly was not a, a spiritual matter, was it? Now, in Luke twelve thirteen it says, actually, it wasn't a request. If you look at it, it's a command. He comes to the Lord and he says, Master, speak to my brother. That's a command, isn't it? <laughs> More than a request. Speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. Isn't it something? We have just talked about a quarrel that Jesus had to resolve between two sisters, Martha and Mary. And now here's the situation, a quarrel going on between two brothers. What do you think that tells us? Are there a lot of family problems in this world? Yes, there are. There's more, I guess there's more fighting and bickering that goes on between families than any other situation. Well, the Jewish law of inheritance was that two-thirds of a father's estate went to the older brother, and one-third went to the younger brother, and it would have to be divided Differently if there was more than two brothers. And if you don't think that's fair, too bad. That's the way it was. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 21:17. Now, whichever son this one was who came to Jesus here, whichever one it was, he did not feel that he was getting his legal share. So what does he do? He appeals to Jesus to get help. And this this isn't really unusual because it was a common practice for people to go to rabbis in order to settle and scribes to settle their legal disputes. Unfortunately, the brother who brought this matter before Jesus was obviously more concerned about the material world than he was about the spiritual world. He, he, you know, he had just heard Jesus talk about some very, very important matters, and yet all he's thinking about is material things. Rather than meditating on what Jesus had said, he was thinking about getting more of this world's goods. However, we notice that Jesus refused to intervene in this inheritance problem of this man and his brother and instead he turned the man's request which was really a command into a very serious warning about covetousness and he said and I think this is interesting he said man he calls him man you know that's kind of generic isn't it (laughs) he knows his sheep by, by, by their names he doesn't call this guy by his name you know it's not like Martha Martha So I think I definitely get the feeling this is not a saved guy here. Um, And he says, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And the pronoun you is interesting because it's given in the plural. So apparently this fellow's brother was there. Obviously he must have been because the man said, speak to my brother. So his brother must have been there. And Jesus uses you, so he's really saying you all, both of you guys. And then in verse 17, it says, and he said unto them. So both brothers were there. Now, the Lord could have settled this issue, couldn't he? He could have told them which brother was in the right. Uh, But because he didn't, and because of what he then proceeded to speak to them about, it's obvious that both brothers were covetous, both of them. And that was the real heart issue that needed to be resolved here. Therefore, we have the Lord's second warning of Luke 12, and it is, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. That's a good verse to highlight in your Bibles. Notice that there's a double warning about covetousness. We only had one warning about hypocrisy. Here's a double warning. Not only does it say take, say take heed, but it says take heed and beware. And the Greek word for beware is beware of, um, guard oneself as from an enemy. You know, covetousness is an enemy. It's a terrible enemy of the world and of the Christian. Covetousness, you see, is the opposite of contentment. Covetousness is the opposite of contentment. To covet is to desire more than what you have. It's to want somebody what somebody else has. It's to, um, to maybe even to be what somebody else is. To maybe to covet somebody else's talents, to covet somebody else's spiritual gifts, um, to covet somebody else's appearance, to covet somebody else's whatever husband, wife, you know, you can just keep going on and on. It's unquenchable for no matter what a person has he he can and usually does desire to have what? More. Either more of what he has, you know, more of it or to have something different Well, I've had this house so long, I'm tired of this, I'd want another one. Or um, to get the latest model on my computer, you know, I don't have the latest. (laughs) I gotta have the, the latest. Something new or something better, something bigger, something more beautiful, something more handsome, something more powerful, whatever. A covetous person in coveting sins against God, doesn't he? Because what is one of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet a coveting person therefore is a sinning person and sinning people are not satisfied because they're sinning against God they're either lost or they're out of fellowship with God so sinning people aren't happy people i mean they're not they're not in fellowship so they're not satisfied godliness with contentment is great gain isn't it that's that's what the scripture says, 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. In fact, a good definition of covetousness is that it is greedy dissatisfaction. And it, I think it's best verbalized by children when they say... You know, they have a toy. I kept the nursery last night here at church. They'll have a toy, but they see the, another kid come along with a bigger, better toy, or even maybe a louder toy, or a prettier color toy, or whatever, and they suddenly aren't happy with their toy. They want the other kid's toy, so they say, give me, give me. That's covetousness, isn't it? You know, I, I had three children, and I used to make sure that they each got exactly the same proportion and exactly the same thing, right? And still, it isn't, you know... I want hers. It's identical. What's the difference? I want that one. Covetousness is just, it's ingrained in it. It's a dangerous thing. And we all have to battle it. Covetousness really arises from having a wrong possessions into having things. And the religious rulers of Israel certainly seem to have this philosophy because they interpreted prosperity as a as a direct sign as their little badge I guess you could say that um, that they were they were that God was pouring his blessings upon, upon them and he God God was approving of them you know their wealth was their badge for saying that they were blessed by God that God was pleased with them and the reason he was ple he was showing his pleasure by making them rich so we could say that their motto was whom the Lord loveth He maketh rich, but that's not in the scripture, so don't go looking for it. That was their motto it's not it's not god's motto. They, the, the religious rulers, especially the Pharisees and the, um, the Sadducees, were terrible at this. They prided themselves on the wealth they had accumulated because they could go around boasting and say, this shows you how spiritual I am. It truly, if you think about it, of course, you don't even have to think about it, you know that it is one of the prevalent problems of our day, is it not? Covetousness and selfishness it's actually a sign that we're in the last days because it says in 1st Timothy 3 this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come for men shall be think of these things and think of our world lovers of their own selves are they out there loving themselves and proud of it (laughs) it's all about me and self-esteem and all that kind of stuff men shall be lovers of their own selves covetous that's the second thing mentioned not hypocrisy, but covetousness. You know, you never can have enough. You always want what somebody else has. That's that's the world out there. That's what advertisement is all about. Don't ever be satisfied. You always have to get more. Um, uh, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. Have you ever seen anything like it in your life? I would never have... I would never... Have said a word to my mother and father in disrespect, and I was not raised in a Christian home. I wouldn't dare, but nowadays it's just unbelievable the disobedience to parents, unthankful. That's the next one. Are people unthankful? Very much so. Very, especially young people. They just think that they deserve it all, and not even thankful for it. Says so unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. And boy, could I get off on that one without natural affection for either in the womb or out of the womb. I have never seen anything like it before. I mean, I, I guess I can understand sometimes men not having natural affection. toward But nowadays it's even mothers not having natural affection toward their own offspring. It's just gotten bizarre, crazy. So Jesus warned these two fighting over their inheritance brothers about another prevalent danger besides being hypocritical. He taught them about the danger of covetousness. People who focus on the things and the, the power and the position and the prominence, the prestige, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that money can bring um, are in great and very serious danger of losing the far more important things that money cannot buy. And this is exactly what happened to the rich farmer in the very famous parable that the Lord gave in verses 16 to 21. Let's look at that. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he, the the rich farmer, thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, he's talking to himself, and he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God, interfering God, But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So he is that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This parable, this is the uh, 20th recorded parable in our Life of Christ study, shows the folly of those who make this world their all. Okay, it's about a certain, notice that word certain again. There was a certain farmer who was wealthy already, and he got even wealthier. But his wealth was not the indictment of this particular farmer. You know, the Lord Jesus never condemned someone for being rich. He didn't condemn the farmer for being wealthy. Why? Because it is not the wealth in itself that is evil. Money is not the root of all evil, is it? Money is just an intangible. It's just a thing. Money <laughs> money's not the root of evil. It is the love of money. That is the root of all evil. Now, of course, how a person obtains his wealth can be evil, such as if he, like some of the scribes and Pharisees and Annas and Caiaphas, the co-reigning high priests um, were robbing widows. And you know, if you're out there making your money by robbing widows and cheating people and lining your own pockets or you're out there gambling and um, extorting people and like the wicked money changers or some of the publicans who added to the tax of the people so that they could, increase their own wealth but this wasn't the case with this particular farmer in this parable he did not obtain his wealth in any evil way he got it through honest hard labor how did he get it he was a farmer can't think of anything more honest and Hard work to be a farmer, especially back in those days. They didn't have the modern air-conditioned tractors and combines like they have today. It was hard work. So, And not only did he obtain his wealth, honestly, but it was greatly blessed by God. I mean, after all, who gave him the sunshine and the rain and everything to grow the crops and the good soil. Another factor to consider, however, is how a person uses his money. How he uses his wealth and not the wealth itself will determine whether there is evil or good in the situation. Although the farmer in this parable did not obtain his wealth through fraudulent or malicious ways, it's not how he got it, yet his attitude toward his riches and the way he wanted to use his wealth was evil. You see, this farmer, this rich farmer, loved money and he loved himself. He loved money, and he loved self. So really, he broke the first two great commandments. He didn't love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is obvious, we'll see, and he didn't love his neighbor as himself, or he would share some of his money. You see, the fact that a person is wealthy or poor does not in itself say whether that person is good or evil. The Lord sends the rain on both the... the, um, The wicked and the righteous. His sun shines on both the just and the unjust, doesn't it? However, all men, whether they're rich or poor, will have to answer to God with what they have done with their riches, with what he has blessed them, with what he has blessed them. Whether they're rich or poor, they're going to have to give an account with what they did with it. Now, the wicked reveal themselves by misusing their blessings, whatever level their blessings are. And everybody in the world gets the sunshine and the rain. Okay, but whatever their level of blessings, they reveal their evil if they misuse their blessings for their own selfish purposes. So they exchange their blessings for a curse. And by the the, the way, the sad by the way, the sad thing. Um, with regard to covetousness is that it is just, a mu- just as much of a problem for the poor as it is for the rich. You know that, right? Does it- covetousness is not just a problem of the rich. This example is about a rich man. But I would say that even poor people might have a bigger problem with covetousness than rich people. Because poor people, a lot of them, not all of them, if they're godly, no matter whether they're rich or the poor, if they're godly and righteous and Christ-like, they're going to be content with whatever they have and be thankful for it. But poor people can covet sometimes more than more than rich because they, they covet what they don't have. <clears throat> so the only righteous way to be is to be rich toward God, as Jesus said here in verse 21. And um, to use whatever we have, if we have a lot, you know, or if we don't have a lot, but to use what we do have to lay up treasures where? In heaven, you know, and use what we have to do good works for, for God's glory, to build up his kingdom, and to help out others. But this parabolic farmer, um, he wanted to use it all on himself. He wanted to eat, drink, and be, be merry. And he notice he was rich. Even before his land brought forth plentifully in verse 6. Now the word plentifully in the Greek is where we get our English root word for euphoric. You've heard that word euphoric, e u p h o r i c. In other words, this man's land on this particular growing season produced a crop that was beyond his wildest expectation. I mean, it produced euphorically. But his prosperity became his perplexity. His wealth only caused him additional problems and additional worry. What would he do with all this extra grain that he had obtained? I mean, poor guy, had a terrible problem. What am I going to do with all this extra money? (laughs) His present barns weren't big enough to store his euphoric crop. You know, Did you know that wealth can often cause more problems than it solves? If you don't believe me, probably talk to some of these people who have won these lotteries and see if they don't have more problems than before. Talk to some of the Hollywood crowd. And see how happy they are with all of their wealth. A lot of times it just brings bigger and more problematic bills. Bigger bills to pay instead of smaller bills to pay. It can also lead, and we see this, very prevalent in our society, it can lead to a lot of living for sensual pleasures as we'll discuss in a minute. It can lead to relationship problems. I mean, what was it doing here in this situation? These two brothers are fighting over money, over their father's inheritance. Isn't this what happened with Abraham and Lot? Things were going great for those guys until their cattle and herds increased so much that they had so much substance that they couldn't even live together. And it, was a, it became a very terrible problem for Lot. Because he chose wrong. But it, we also, it also became a problem with Jacob and Esau, another pair of um, brothers. So now the rich farmer had a new problem, which he talked over within himself as he worried and he pondered about what to do. And the word thought in verse 17 is given in the imperfect tense, which means he was, he was just, that's all he could think about day and night. First thing in the morning he got up, all he could think about is his wealth and the related problem of where he was going to put it all. And uh, as we hear him speaking to himself, we certainly pick up on the fact that his world was centered around himself. How do we pick up on that? Well, first of all, who does he counsel with? Himself. He's, you know, he's even talking to his soul. Soul. Hey, soul, what do you, <laughs> what do you think we're going to do about it? Have you ever talked to yourself like that? <laughs> Never thought about doing it that way. but uh, He doesn't counsel with God. He doesn't even talk with his wife about his situation or his sons if he had any which he probably did he he um he he talks to himself and failure to talk with god about our problems is not going to solve our problems in the long run it's really going to increase our problems you know, if you have a covetous problem, talk to God about it. Don't talk within yourself about it. This man didn't even consult his family or wise, you know, godly counsel. He just talked to himself. Notice how many times he used the personal pronoun I and my. It's amazing. Go through what he says, and it's all about I, I, I. I will, I will. My barns, my, my goods, my fruits, uh, my soul. He says it 11 times he uses the personal pronoun. What's he all about? Himself. And the only thing he really got right was the part about his soul being his soul, which he should have paid more attention to. But rather than thinking about his soul, he was consumed with thinking about his wealth. How many people do you think there are in this world who the first thought they have in the morning when they wake up is, got to check the stock market today, got to see how my financial portfolio is doing? How many people have their happiness riding on their financial situation? Or um, looking forward to that day when they have finally accumulated enough that they can retire and come and live in Pinehurst and, and golf. Uh-oh, don't step on toes. And there's nothing matter with that. There's nothing the matter with that. But there is if these people do not take time for the spiritual well-being of their own soul, the only thing that they really do possess. And that was this farmer's problem. And notice that the farmer lacked any thankfulness or gratefulness to God for his prosperity. He was consumed with thinking about the burdens of his wealth rather than the blessings of his wealth. Instead of thanking God, I mean, who? after all, who was the one who was responsible for his great crop that year, his euphoric crop? God. God was the one who provided everything for that crop to, grow, to uh, do so well. But instead of thanking God, he said to himself, what shall I do? What shall I do? I've got such a problem here. And we also notice the obvious absence of in the farmer's thoughts about anything good and helpful and neighborly to do with his great prosperity he doesn't think you know how can I share my euphoria Um, his only thought was for how he could hoard it for his own future use he was a scrooge he was miserly so he contemplated the situation and he came up with a plan All right, he would tear down all of his old barns and what was he going to do build bigger and better barns it was all a matter of his own self-appointed sovereignty notice he didn't even say Lord willing I will tear down my old barns and Lord willing I will build bigger and better barns and he's going to selfishly store all do you notice the word all in verse 18 there there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods there's not even a mention of, of tithing One tenth. Even the scribes and Pharisees would have probably given a tenth. If they if they gave a tenth of their mint and rue, (laughs) they'd give a tenth of their of their uh, grain. But there's no mention here of tithing. There's no mention of giving it away, some of it at least, away to the poor or the needy or to use it even for a future income for his own family, his, his own children. He doesn't say to himself, soul, okay, this is good. Now my wife and my children will be taken care of if something happens to me. His thoughts are only for himself. And then he formulated the second part of his future. His building project would be followed up by his banqueting plan. His building project followed by his banqueting plan. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, Thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, what? Eat, you all say it together. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's his banqueting plan. One of the great dangers of wealth is the temptation to use it to feed one's own pleasures. the the temptation to use it for sensuous living. And this is exactly what we saw the prodigal son did, didn't he? He wanted his father's money, his inheritance early, and what did he do with it? He wasn't mature enough to spend it wisely, so he devoured it with harlots. Luke fifteen thirty, People far too often use their wealth to satisfy the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And again, just look at what you see on television, and it's very, very obvious. This philosophy of eat, drink, and be merry was the philosophy back in that day of the Epicureans who put the emphasis on life in pampering the physical appetite. You know, the emphasis was all, not on the spiritual, but all on the physical. You know, that's why Paul said it somewhere in the Bible, that their God was their belly. It was all about feeding the lusts of the flesh. And how often in this world does wealth lead to a corrupt character that gives its greatest attention to the lusts and to pride, the pride of life. So many of these Hollywood people—you you, you look at their lives—and it's all about the lusts and pride, isn't it? They're destroying themselves. They're destroying their character and themselves, and they, they die of overdoses, and it's just horrible. Actually, if, if I'd say most most people in in this in this country, at least I can tell, well, probably in the world too but they, they live at this level. They live at the level this level, whether they're rich or they're poor. They live at the level of the physical. They don't rise above their physical desires. All day long, if you go through their life, everything is about feeding, feeding, feeding the lusts, you know, the belly, the desires, what I want, what I need, what I want to see on television, what I want to do today, and they exclude anything having to do with the spiritual level. They exclude the Lord while their own flesh rules them. The rich farmer talked to his soul and thought that he could satisfy the needs of his soul by feeding the lusts of his flesh. But what does Scripture say? What did Jesus say to say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. What satisfies man? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You want true satisfaction. You're only going to find it in feeding on spiritual food that comes from this word, the Bible. There's no nutrition for the soul in the eat, drink, and be merry diet. You know, we have a lot of diets out there, don't we? You know, the South Beach diet and the Weight Watchers diet and all these different diets. But you're never going to satisfy the nutritional needs for the soul by the eat, drink, and be merry diet. That's one diet you want to avoid. I think it's only going to make you fat anyway eat drink (laughs) so this rich farmer supposedly had it all figured out he would do as he pleased to please himself and he would set he would set be set he'd set back (laughs) he'd sit back and he'd be set for many years to come there's only one thing he forgot he was not the captain of his own ship he uh was not the master of his own fate who was god of course and God will have his say, and God will have his way, no matter what the plans of men. After all the plans of this rich farmer were laid out in his mind, the Lord Jesus then said those two words in verse 20. But God. And ever, whenever we see words like that... In the scripture, remember it said, but Martha? (laughs) It means that there's going to be a big contrast in what is said next and what was said before. And sure enough, that's exactly what we find. The rich farmer thought that his future was going to be lush and plush and posh for many years to come. He thought that he was a wise and prudent man. But God, interfering God, had to go and stick his nose in everything, didn't he? God suddenly pops into the picture and it surely wasn't to pat this man on the back and say, what a good bo- boy are you. What was that little boy that stuck his... <laughs> it, it was to say, fool. Can, do you... I mean, can you imagine anything worse than to hear God call you a fool? Thou isn't even in the original. Look at verse 20. But God said unto him, fool. And when God calls you a fool, it is serious business. God called the rich farmer, who by the way, he had made rich a fool. Um, Not only that, but the man his soul would be... I lost my place for a minute, sorry. Mr. Bigger Barnes was a fool because his soul, here he was planning for the future, and his soul was going to be required of him that very night. Just when he thought he had it all together, you know, just when he thought, "Um, mm, finally could retire and he could kick off his shoes, he could really enjoy himself, what happened? Time ran out, just like that. What he had been preparing uh, for was everything except death. He prepared for everything but death. In spending all of his time meditating about what shall I do in this life, he had completely neglected the next life. He had completely neglected thinking about eternity. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Mark 8:36 someone else was going to benefit from all of his uh, full barns, right? Remember when we talked about Martha and Mary? We said, you know, somebody else one day is going to be eating off of our china (laughs) and using our silverware. Somebody else was going to benefit from all those great piles of grain that he could not take with him into the next life. He that heapeth up riches and knoweth knoweth not who shall gather them. You don't know. You know, this is something that really bothered King Solomon. King Solomon was very, 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 very rich, probably one of the richest people who had ever lived. And you know what he said? He said, Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. Uh, What good is all this labor in accumulating all this stuff because I'm just going to leave it to the one behind me? (laughs) That's Ecclesiastes 2.18. Where the rich farmer was going, none of his possessions, none of his wealth, not even one drop of drink, not one crumb of bread would provide him with any further comfort or pleasure. Of all of his assets, he had only one of continuing value. And what was that? His soul, right. Only his soul was destined to live on. You know, the greatest tragedy of this story, really, is not what the man left behind. The greatest tragedy of this story is uh, what lay before him. Not what he left behind, but what lay before him, because God had called him a fool. And who was a fool in the scripture? Does he ever call a saved person a fool? The fool is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. You see, this man was living his life like there was was no God. The real tragic thing is that this rich farmer may have been a prominent member in his own local church. Think about that. Probably many similar men and women sitting in our churches today, just like this fellow. No amount of wealth can keep us alive when our time to die arrives. That's for sure. No matter how rich you are, how much you have in the bank account, when your time is up, your time is up. Nor can any amount of wealth buy back the opportunities that we have missed while we were thinking only of ourselves and ignoring God and our fellow man. You see, this rich farmer lived his life by his own choice. He lived it without God, and therefore God gives a man what he wants. He wanted to live without God, so he died without God. He was a fool because he had invested his whole life in that which is merely temporary and not in that which is eternal. And Jesus said that this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not what. Look at the last three words, verse 21, rich toward God. If you don't want to be a fool and live your life foolishly, build up treasures in heaven. Make yourself rich toward God and be wise. And prudent in God's eyes. Let's pray, Father. Help each and every one of us to truly take heed and beware of these two very, very uh, dangerous sins: that of hypocrisy and covetousness. We know, Father, in our hearts that our our lives do not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. So help us teach us, Father, to not be so consumed and concerned about laying up treasures for ourselves, but to be rich toward God, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, and then leave all those added things to your discretion, and to be thankful if you do give them to us, to be thankful and to be content with whatever we had. Oh, Lord, teach us contentment. We pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.